Just remain standing with me as we just read through the rest of this text. Our scripture reading was taken from the book of Matthew chapter 25 and we did from verses 14 through 19, but the entirety of my text is actually from verses 14 through 30. So if you would, just stand with me as we read the remainder of this particular text. Reading from verse 20 onward, it says, So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. The Lord said to him, Well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things I will make you ruler over many things enter into the joy of your Lord then he who had received one talent came and said Lord <laughs> I knew you were a hard man reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed and I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground look there you have what is yours? But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew I reap where I have not sown. I gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money. I want to repeat that one more time. So you ought to have deposited my money. Let me repeat that one more time. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming I would have received back my own, my own with interest. Therefore take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents for to everyone who has more will be given and he will have abundance but from him who does not have even what he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Repeat after me. Use it or lose it. Use it or lose it. You may have your seats. Our text on this morning, though part of a parabolic discourse in chapter 25 is actually part of a broader context with regard to a sequence of questions Jesus was pretty much asked by his disciples in chapter 24 specifically verse number three having just prophesied concerning a destructive event that would come upon Jerusalem he is asked by his disciples on the Mount of Olives in secret, and I'm reading from the uh, New Living Translation here. He is asked to tell us when all this will happen, number one. And then number two, what sign will signal your return and the end some translations may have of the world? Admittedly, there are some difficulties in interpreting 
without question, what exactly was he talking about in Matthew chapter 24 and particularly in our text in chapter 25? Historically, this day that Jesus is referring to, this day that Jesus was alluding to, is generally understood and for the most part agreed upon by theologians that it is referring or referencing the destruction of Jerusalem. However, the part that is most hotly contested and debated is the question, what sign will signal your return and the end of the world? The word translated world there in chapter 24, the word translated word there can also be translated age. Which some have suggested has nothing to do with any sort of uh, worldwide earthly destruction, but rather it points to a, uh, a, a specific end of time or period, era, or dispensation that Jesus was specifically alluding to. So for example, if you've done some study uh, uh, in, in, into the different dispensations that theologians and the Bible often refers to, you have some, some dispensations like the antediluvian dispensation, the patriarchal dispensation. I'll, I'll just reference this for a little bit, the mosaic dispensation, the prophetic dispensation, the messianic dispensation, and of course the Christian dispensation. These dispensations pretty much represent the periods in time in which God spoke to men using specific methods. So in the antediluvian period, that period leading up to the flood, God spoke to men directly in the patriarchal period. It is said that he spoke to men through the patriarchs or the fathers of the household in the mosaic dispensation. Of course, he communicated through the law of Moses and Moses himself through the prophetic dispensation. He spoke to his people and he spoke to the world through the prophets in the messianic dispensation it is understood that he is speaking to the Jews through of course the law that was previously given but in the Christian dispensation he is speaking to his people through Christ the Holy Spirit and the word that was given and so many conclude that while he is speaking concerning the uh, a specific destruction he is really referencing everything that you would read in chapter 24 and 25 is specific within respect to the destruction ultimately of Jerusalem so because of this there are there, there are those who hold to the view that the references are having absolutely nothing to do with what we generally refer to as the second coming of Christ or Christ's return. Rather, the belief is that everything in this dialogue in chapter 24 and chapter 25 is actually exclusively about the destruction of Jerusalem. So I'm saying all that to say this, that there are those who hold to the view that everything that we would read and we would conclude in chapters 24 of the book of Matthew and chapter 25 have nothing to do with what you and I may associate as being uh, things pertaining to Christ's return. But it has everything to do with times leading up to the day of destruction in Jerusalem in AD, AD 70. However, 
there is the view that Jesus does not speak concerning what was the event, the eventual destruction of Jerusalem only. But he uses this event and this particular day of destruction as a springboard to also teach some kingdom values and expectations. As he shares some further prophetic information regarding his return. So at the end of chapter 24, he begins to encourage the disciples to be on their guard and to keep their eyes open. So having the second coming in view, Jesus begins teaching some kingdom teaching, some kingdom attitudes, and some kingdom perspectives. So that is to say, while there are those who believe that everything pertaining to Matthew 25 and 24 is specifically only dealing and treating with the destruction of Jerusalem and events leading up to that, there are those and there is sufficient, there is sufficient evidence in the text of chapter 24 to prove that he is actually using this very real event, this very real destruction that would have come upon Jerusalem to further his teaching and his agenda for kingdom people. So he would use this as a springboard. He would use this as a foundation. He would use this as a platform to cast these people's minds beyond this physical day of destruction to an eventual day of destruction that will happen, that will come upon men when he himself returns. And so we pick up our text in Matthew chapter 25 with a two-movement parable about the kingdom. He has just concluded at the end of chapter 24, encouraging the disciples to be on their guard. He has just concluded in Matthew chapter 24 to encourage or to warn the disciples about not being prepared. And he engages at the beginning of what is chapter 25 in a two-parable movement discourse on his way to answering and to elaborating on some of their concerns. The first parable that is found in chapter 25 verses 1 through 13 speaks about ten virgins, five of whom were wise and five of whom he concludes in his parable as being foolish. But the second parable speaks about a man and his servants. The second parable is found in verses 14 through verses 13. If you will allow me to just do diligence in giving you some of the details of the text, we, we will get the details and then we would ultimately understand some of the context and hopefully be able to make some necessary applications. For application could be off if we don't have the proper interpretation. So interpretation is vital to proper application. You guys with me? And so some of the details of the text, if you have gone through the text and you are familiar with this text, number one, there is a man that is going on a long journey or on a long trip. And of course, I believe without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is referencing at this particular point in the parable, he is referencing himself. He is about to get ready to leave and he is about to get ready to take a journey and it will be some time before he comes back. However, in this parable, not only do we see this master of the house taking a long trip, but he also calls his servants three by number and he distributes to them, each one of them, 
different quantities of money according, check this, to their several ability. One servant receives five talents. Another servant receives two talents. And the last servant that was called into the master's presence received one talent. After a long time, these are just the details of the text. After a long time, the, the, serve, the, the master returns and he calls his servants to, to reckon accounts with, with them. Two servants took what they had and used it and gained more. They received good, condemn, good commendations from their master because of the work that they, they had done. However, one of the three servants who had received just the one talent decided that he didn't want to take the risk of losing it. And so he went about to hide this talent in the dirt, for which his master gave him a strong condemnation. And so what I want us to appreciate from this particular text is Jesus is ultimately saying some things to, to his disciples as he does some teaching using these parables in chapter 25. And I believe as, as we look at this specific parable before we bring this message to a close, I believe that as we look at this specific parable, I want us to appreciate some things uh, uh, about the application of what I believe Jesus is teaching here, its implication. And, and so I want us to understand and appreciate that while he is teaching the disciples and he is using a parable, the, 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 the thrust of the parable has a message for each and every single one of us. Here are my, here are my questions today. Is, is Jesus uh, away from us right now? Yes. And so is there going to be a time that you believe he's going to come back? Yes, you are right. And so notice in this particular parable, before the master of the house takes his journey, he calls his, he calls his servants and he distributes to his servants out of his monetary gain. So to one, he gave five talents. To the other, he gave two talents. And to one, he gave one talent. It wasn't that the master had a, a, a favorable eye to one and didn't have a favorable eye to the other. The reason why it is he gave them different quantities because he understood that each one had different ability to handle specific quantities of blessings. So the one that had the, who, who was given five talents was only given five talents because he, let me even, let, let, let me put this in, now let me try to interject us in, in, into the scenario. He or she has the ability to handle all of those blessings. The one that was given two talents was only able, according to the master, to handle those two talents because that's the ability that he had. He could not have received three, three would have been to his destruction. But the one that received one talent, it's interesting how we sometimes look at money. And I, I, I love the, the different versions of this particular reading because whereas it says talent, if you don't know what a talent is, we, we might go away with our thinking. When we think about money, we think about money in dollars and cents. And so you might think when you hear one talent, well, that, that just means one me medium of currency. That might mean one coin. That might mean one shilling. That might mean one dollar. But when you are thinking talent in a true sense, you're thinking about a bag full of money. 
One talent, one bag full of money was the equivalent of 15 years of wages. So that tells me even though the person had received just one talent, one bag of money, that one bag of money was a lot. And sometimes we, 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 don't, we don't understand that the talents and the abilities, and I, I know I'm kind of cross, crossing context here because he is speaking about money specifically, but I think even though he uses money or currency specifically in the text, our application should exceed just money. God has blessed us with money, and if we were to keep it simple to the text, that whatever he has blessed us with, he is saying, it is more than enough to use to my honor and to my glory. You might think the money that you have is a little, but the last time I checked, we serve a God who is able to take little and make it much. You remember when he fed a multitude of five loaves and two fishes? I'm just saying, whatever your money, as little as it may seem in your hands, if you trust God to work with it, if you trust God to use it to his honor and to his glory, he will take the meager and he'll multiply it into much. We, we don't like, we don't like prosperity preachers. We, 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 we don't like prosperity preachers because oftentimes they, they preach a doctrine that's all about gain and gain and gain and gain and gain. But let me tell you one thing that some of these prosperity preachers gets right. Gets right. Whenever they start talking about when you take your money and you, sub, you submit your money to God, I'm not saying take your money, bring it here and put it at my feet. You'll never hear me say that. But when you saw in scripture, they would have taken their money and placed it at the apostles' feet. That wasn't them putting it into the apostles' pocket. That was them saying, I, I, I have subjected myself and I, I, I willfully give this money up to be used to the honor and glory of God. So you, get, you know what the apostles and they did? When the money came and it was placed at their feet, that was figurative language, by the way. When the money came and was placed at their feet, they, their feet, they took it. And they distributed to every man and woman as every man and woman, check this, had need. So we have problems with the prosperity doctrine. We have problems with prosperity preachers because they pocket money as opposed to taking money that has been given in the name of the Lord and using it to take care of the needs of the people that gather with them. I have a story one time of a lady that we met while we were out in the fields in Trinidad. She attended that particular church. And I'm not, I'm not here to bash anybody, and, but I'm trying, to get, I'm trying to help us to see something. She was attending a particular church. She didn't have a lot of money, and she had just saved up the little bit of money that she had to, to purchase a, a new refrigerator. She didn't have a refrigerator. Her refrigerator was out, and it was gone. And so she had been working with, with her icebox for a number of weeks and every time she would have to take some ice and uh, put it in this box and she would take her meat and put it in there and she would have to use the meat before the ice turns to water because if the ice turns to water and it doesn't, be it doesn't get cold enough, the meat was going to be spoiled. And so the prosperity preacher that she was going to, the, the preacher that she was following one day had, had, had this bright idea that he was going to close the doors. And nobody was going to leave until they raised that day, that day $1.2 million. So this woman, she, she hears him say things like, you need to sow a seed. And she hears him talk about the blessings of God. And you just need to give so that God could bless you. And she hears that. And what does she do? She has her little check in her pocket that she was going just the, uh, the next day to buy her brand new fridge. She takes out the check. She re-endorses it. And she throws it into the collection plate. 
That specific day they raised not 1.2, but at least 1.4 million dollars. And not a cent went back to that poor woman. She went for weeks after that without a refrigerator. People didn't have beds, people didn't have food, and, and yet still what would have transpired was this one man pocketed the money. I'm trying to help us to recognize I'm, I, 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 there are some aspects about prosperity doctrine that is unhealthy, but I'm trying to help us to see that there is an aspect of their teaching that in some way has a, a good way in on us in that whenever we have whatever we have, I believe with all my heart, if we trust to use it to God's honor and to his glory, if we take what we have and we trust God to multiply it, we take what we have and we use it to good and positive effect. I believe with all my heart that God has the ability to bless us in a way that we have never experienced before. Anybody here ever take the, took the, the last bit of money that they had in, 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 in their wallet or in their pocket or in their account and you did a good deed? I'm not asking you right now to tell me what your good deed is, but you, has anybody here ever taken the little that they had and used it when somebody else had a need that they deemed either the same or greater than they and then ultimately they were blessed beyond measure? Anybody here ever took food, you, the only food you had in your cupboard and, and your neighbor or your friend or, or a colleague or somebody was also in need and you have children that you had to feed but you said, you know what, I, I think I, my God has, has, has me in the palm of his hands and you take your food and you give it away only to have a brother or a sister or a friend or somebody who was five years removed from your life come and say, you know what? I remember that you loaned me some money 15 years ago and I just got a bonus uh, on work and so, you know, I thought about you and I believe that God wants me to give you this check and when you look at the check, it's a check for $1,000. Things like that happen when we put our trust in God and we use the little that we have to His honor and His glory. So I want us to see that even though one of these men were given one talent, it was the equivalent of 15 years wages, I'm saying whatever little we have is more than enough to do the job and the task that God has called us to perform. God has this ability where he doesn't give anything, everything, but he does give everything and everyone something. Let me repeat that one more time. God never gives anything, everything, but he does give everything something. You can't look at yourself in all honesty and say that God has not given you anything. And if you, if you, if you dare say that, then you are not looking either honest enough or hard enough. Because God has given every single one of us something. Amen. Let me show you this before I move on. We need to come to our close. Everybody know what a peacock is? A peacock is probably one of the most beautiful birds that the eye can behold. When that peacock starts to strut and it it gets excited because it doesn't always get excited now. It, you know, sometimes you see the peacock and it's just walking around there and the, and the tail is just wagging around. But when the peacock, when the peacock gets excited to, 
You see that, that tail? I, I can't do it. I, I, <laughs> you see that tail just go up. And those, those feathers spread. And it becomes a sight to behold. It's a beautiful bird. Amen? Amen? It's a beautiful bird. But look down at that peacock's feet. If you look down, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't get some pictures to put it up on project, but if you look down at a peacock's feet, it's some of the most ugliest feet that God ever created to place on an animal. But the eagle, on the other hand, though not as beautiful as the peacock, he is able to soar high in the sky. And while in the sky is able to look from about two miles above the ground and find prey on the earth. I'm trying to help us to recognize God doesn't give anything, everything, but he does give everything, something. So God has given you and he has given me something that he expects of us. While he is away before he returns, he expects of us to take what he has given to us and to use it, not for our honor and not for our glory, but for his. And let me show you how this works. When we work, when we use that which has been given to us, and let me, let, me, let me reference this now because when you use your money, when you use your gifts, when you use your talents, when you use your abilities, when you use what God has blessed you with to use to his honor and to his glory, you know what happens? You know what happens? When he comes back, like the one who he gave to five, he gave five talents and the one he gave two talents, he, he says to them, listen, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Now, I want us to appreciate this because I really believe there is a picture that's being painted here and we need to be careful with this picture. I don't want us to think that if we invest $100 into doing the work of the Lord, that we ought to expect to receive $100 back or $200 when everything is said and done. That's not the math I want us to see. I want us to recognize that what Jesus is actually talking about here is when you take what I have given you and you use it, ultimately you will get multiplication. So some people think, well, okay, I'm, I'm, Jesus is a good banker here. So if I take $5,000 and I invest it in the church, well, that means at the end of the year, I'll not only get back $5,000, you know, if I, if, I, if I do the tax return, but I'll, but I'll get $5,000 more. So at the end of the year, by giving $5,000 to the church, I should have $10,000. That's not the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach. He's trying to help them to recognize that if you just use it, it will multiply. Twofold, threefold, fourfold, fifty percent, a hundred percent. He is saying, if you just use it, it will multiply. But here comes the third servant, and it's interesting. The third servant, because he he has this this idea about his God. He knows some things about his master. He says, Lord. I knew that you were a hard man. I knew the type of master that I serve. You were the type of master that you reap where you don't sow. Now, I want you to understand that that's, that's language for, for someone who is not just thrifty, but that's language for somebody who is a real business head and savvy. Some might even conclude that that idea of reaping where you have not sown and, and gathering where you, have not, where, where, where you have not laid any type of work, some would say, well, that's the, that's the idea of a tyrant, but it's not a tyrant type of mentality. It's somebody who knows and understands business. 
I may not have sold in your field, but I could partner with you in a way. I may not have bought this particular land, but I could partner with you in such a way where it's beneficial both to you and to me. So this master was such a, a shrewd businessman. He was such a classy businessman. He was such a good businessman that he was able to, to have interest and gain interest where he didn't even spend an initial cent. So he says, Lord, I, I knew the type of master I was serving. I want you to understand, sometimes we think we could butter up God. Sometimes we think that we could sweet talk, but well, God, I knew you were such a loving God, so, so that's why I could, I could get away with the sin in my life. God, I knew you were such a, a merciful God, and that's why I, I, I could ultimately be lazy. God, I knew you were, such, you were such a loving God, that's why I could act the fool sometimes, and because you're such a loving, a good, a gracious God, you know, I know you'll forgive me. If you knew he was a loving God, if you knew he was a merciful God, if you knew he was a gracious God, but then by extension, you should know that he a just God. So don't just hold on to, to certain attributes of God when it suits you. If you have to hold on to anything about God, is knowing that he's a just God and you will get your just reward for the work that you and I have put in. So watch this. He said, I was, I was afraid. So the reason why I hid the money, the reason why I took the, the quantity of, 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 of money that you gave me, the talent that you gave me, the reason why I took it and I hid it was because I was afraid. I was terrified about, number one, losing it. I was terrified about using it and probably making a mistake. I'm going to hurry quick, church. I'm going to hurry. I'm almost done. So sometimes we could find ourselves crippled by fear. And when we are crippled by fear, we find ourselves in a place where we, we don't make any decision whatsoever. The story is told, I heard, it, I heard this from an old preacher years ago, and I'm, I'm going to use it now. The story is told about a horse that was tied in the middle between two bales of hay. The, the, the rope is long enough on the horse's neck to where he could eat from one bale at a time. And when he's done with one bale, he could just move to the next and eat the other one. But he, he is there in the middle and he can't choose where to go. He is crippled by decision and so he ultimately stays there, starves and dies. I'm just trying to help us to recognize that sometimes we stay so long in a place of indecision that sometimes situations, situations go past us. Sometimes we wait too long to reach out to individuals that by the time we get the opportunity to reach out to them, they have long since checked out. Sometimes we wait so long to, to come to Christ that when we do actually decide we want to come to Christ, it, it might be too late. Check the, the rich man and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Sometimes we wait too long to make a decision that the opportunity no longer presents itself. I know some of us are married now, happily so, but let me talk to some of these young men and young women. And if we have some honest folks inside here, we would testify to the fact that sometimes because of indecision, we lost the momentum and we lost the opportunity. We lost the moment. And so here it is. We find ourselves in a position where this man, because of his fear, he took what was given to him to be used and he hid it and not use it. Watch this. The risk is not losing 
what you and I have been given. But the risk is not using what you and I have been blessed with. He was afraid to lose what he was given, so he didn't use it. The result was that in not using it, he eventually lost everything. So when we look at this particular text, I want us to understand that it's not really about, and I know, I know we, we often try to do the human thing where we're talking about management. We talk about management for the church. We talk about management for everything. But I want us to appreciate it. The fear ought not to be to lose. The fear ought to be not using. Now, there is a difference if you use it and you abuse it. But there is a difference between not using and abusing. So as we look at this particular text, I want to bring this to a close. As we look at this particular text, I believe that God is trying to share some, most, some much valuable lessons as he talks to his people in lieu of his second coming. Number one, as we look at the parable of the ten virgins, five of whom were wise and five of whom were foolish. I think he is saying that we need to be prepared and watching. Say, be prepared. Be prepared. And watching. In the second parable that we have been dealing with, I believe that the major lesson he is talking about is to be productive. Say, be productive and working. So when you look at Matthew chapter 25, I think what Jesus is doing is that he says, in lieu of my return, and, and, and as, you, as you look in expectation for, for when I do come back, while you wait, you prepare and you watch. While you wait with expectation, he says, I need for you to be productive and working. Let's all stand. I, I, I'm done. Let's all stand. Re repeat after me if you don't mind. Repeat after me if you don't mind. While we wait, we will pray. While we wait, say it with some feeling. We will serve. While we wait, we will love. While we wait, come on, don't get tired. We will sing. While we wait, we will praise God. While we wait, we will worship. Come on, come on, don't get tired. Repeat after me one more time. We'll work till Jesus comes. We'll work till Jesus comes. We'll work till Jesus comes. And we'll be gathered home. Finish this statement. Use it. Or lose it. 